you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the book of Romans, page 795 in our church Bibles. We're going to begin our verse-by-verse study in Romans, as was promised, and we will um, take a few breaks along the way, but this will be our meat and drink for, for a while. This morning we're going to read the first seven verses of Romans chapter 1. Again, page 795 in the church Bibles. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we begin our studies in Romans, may you please bless us with extravagant grace beyond anything we have yet been able to experience in order that we might extend your goodness and your glory to others and that we might glory in your son and put no confidence in our flesh. And Father, since our weakness is never a hindrance to your work, but simply an opportunity for you to display your power and your love and your unwavering commitment to us, your children, we then boast in our weakness. I boast in my weakness so that Christ may be may be preached as he was in the beginning, therein doing for us what we could never do for ourselves, for we need a deeper understanding of your gospel. And we would just simply ask that you would inject that understanding into our lives and into our ministries and into your church. And so, God, for Jesus' sake, we we would ask that you would please give that and help us now. Amen. Well, this is foundational to the book of Romans, and it's actually our first point, and it's this. If we were left to ourselves, our own self-obsession, even for some our religious devotion, would be pressed into service for ourselves in order to justify ourselves in front of men, in front of women, in front of our mirrors, in an argument, and to be sure, equally in front of God. You see, the Bible teaches that humanity's fundamental problem is a corrupted heart giving way to all kinds of distorted and twisted desires, which emphasize at one level external behavior. And external behavior does nothing to address the corruption of our heart because a sinful heart, now listen carefully, a sinful heart cannot be changed by doing good. And we have to understand that. A sinful heart cannot be changed by good behavior. We may look good and we may look better, but we're not. And a Christian looking life 
is not enough. It's not the goal. Therefore, in our piety, our obedience, instead of being the vehicle for like selfless adoration and exaltation and conversations about God and his grace and his goodness and about Christ and his excellency, our goodness would become the basis, and you find this in the Gospels all over the place, our goodness becomes the basis on which we uh, presume to establish some kind of claim on God, some claim on righteous living, and some claim on others who are not living, we think, righteously. If you like, we are so tempted to make a savior out of our morality. So in our obedience, men as man, we try to obligate or purchase favor from God or obligate God to love us, some type of status that sets us apart. And in all that, we are simply trusting in ourselves, trying to continuously justify ourselves like the Pharisee of Luke 18 who said in his prayer, remember, I thank God I am not like other people, especially like that tax collector. And then he rips off an impressive list of all his good deeds. So externally, he's hitting hitting all the points. And externally, hitting all the points, it gives him confidence to say in front of God how bad that tax collector is. Reminds me of like um, MC Hammer. He's like, you can't touch this. I externally, I am doing it wrong. But internally, his true nature is exposed by the only one, the only one who can see it as it is. And that is Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus says at the end of that story, that guy is not justified. He is not right before God. He's actually separated from God. In other words, it's Galatians 5.4. You who are trying to be justified by obedience, by keeping the law, have been alienated from Christ. So this might be striking to some of us. Nevertheless, when a person uses obedience, uses good works as a means to improve or create or rest in as the basis of their acceptance with God, this actually alienates a person from God. As in the case of every other religion, because every other religion is like, come on, here's your list, do it. And once you do it, you'll be fine. External always. And the moral high ground a person so desperately desires, which they think they have, is a lie. Is a lie. And besides, that Pharisee was making a judgment on his own standard, not God's standard. Because we'll learn in Romans 3 that God's standard quiets down everyone. And if you think about it, what is it about our works which we think can please God or we can approach God with more than the sacrifice of his son? In fact, in the New Testament, the opposite of sin is not um, virtue or not sinning. The opposite of sin in the New Testament is faith, which is why when Paul speaks of sin, it's not in the plural. It's always in the singular, sin. So sin, not in multiple acts of moral failure, but sin turning away from a gracious God. No faith in God, no faith in his son, which is how the righteous live. It's no wonder the early church delighted in saying Christ took what was ours, namely our sin and its penalty, in order that we might receive what was his, namely his righteousness, his perfection, and an unbreakable union with God as father in Christ. Therefore, even our own identities as Christians, as children of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ will not be healed and will never be whole until we have heart in, settled in the truth that God says to you, Christian, just as you are right now, Christian, he says to you exactly what he said to his son, you are my child whom I love and with you, I am totally satisfied. 
Loved ones, that is the excellency of Jesus. That has nothing to do with our morality. That is the excellency of Jesus, the excellency of being in Christ, the beauty of the cross, the beauty of our meet and greet doctrine of justification. It's not because we are being good enough. That office belongs to Jesus Christ alone. And so the way to free ourselves from the destructive influence of these, we'll call them um, counterfeit righteousness or counterfeit gods, is to turn back to the true one, to the living God. He's the only one, as you come to him, who can truly fulfill you, and if you fail him, can truly and always forgive you. That's the God we need to know. And we find that God in the Bible. We find him specifically in Romans, and even more specifically, if your Bible's open, look down, verse 1, verse 2, Verse 3, verse 4, verse 6, verse 7, we find that in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing how many times Christ is mentioned in the first seven verses? Now, all of that is foundational. It's the melody line of the book of Romans, and this then is the heartbeat of the gospel. It's the heartbeat of God. It's the heartbeat of the Holy Spirit. It's what it means to be a Christian and what it means to not be a Christian. And it's glorious. It's good news. Good news that, frankly, could put us in a good mood. But far more than foundationally, historically, it's our second point, the book of Romans has had massive influence on Christians in every century. Excuse me. So one of the things I am convinced of, I'm convinced that by God's power, God will transform in mind and in heart a whole lot of people as we move through the book of Romans. And the reason why I have confidence in that is because that's what God has done in the past. And as you peek into history and you see how God uses the book of Romans or used the book of Romans to change people and aid his church. In fact, the greatest transformations and the greatest revivals that we know about, the ones that are historical that we can have actual record on, were as a result of the power of God unleashed from the book of Romans. And I want to mention a few of them in order that we can take our study seriously and sincerely with, I hope, a whole lot of joy and a whole lot of anticipation of what the Word of God by the Spirit of God will do as the Word of God is preached. And perhaps maybe for some people here, you've been on that search for so, so long. Acceptance. Forgiveness, hard-end security, hard-end peace, stability and safety and quietness. And all that always depends on your behavior and not on what Jesus has done at the cross. So I'm hoping that there'll be a whole lot of people week by week that will love the gospel more and understand it even better. Do, Do you know this song? From the door of an orphanage to the house of the king. No longer an outcast, new song I sing. From rags unto riches, from the weak to the strong, I'm not worthy to be here, but praise God, I belong. You know that song? I bet you know the chorus. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Join heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, for I'm part of the family, the family of God. That's number one. That's foundational. Number two, two historically. Now, how, how the book of Romans was used by God. We're going to begin with a guy named Augustine, known as Augustine of Hippo, born in Algeria. During his younger days, he was both a slave of sexual passion 
And he was the object of his mother Monica's prayers. Summer, 386 A.D., her prayers become polite because Augustine is entering his second year as an instructor in the University of Milan. He's an uh, instructor of rhetoric, rhetoric, and he is weeping in the garden of his friend Alphaeus. He cannot break with his sexual addiction. He cannot break with his old life. He is all hyped up on all kinds of horrible things. He wrote, I was engaged in a burning struggle. I was twisting and turning in my chains. I threw myself, <clears throat> excuse me, under a fig tree and I let my tears flow. So he sat and he cried and he, historians tell us that he heard children singing in the neighboring yard. This is what they were singing. It's um, tole lege, tole lege, and it means take up and read. Take up and read. So he thought, maybe I should do that. And right by his friend Alphaeus was a scroll. He picked it up, and this is what it said. Romans 13, verse 14. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And this is what Augustine said. No further would I read, nor had I any need. Instantly, at the end of this sentence... A clear light flooded my heart, and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. And in that very moment, from one sentence from the book of Romans, a man was converted, and a church received to her gain Augustine. Now, he wasn't perfect. No one is. But he was forgiven, and he knew it. Another, 1515, professor of sacred theology in the Catholic University of Wittenberg, Germany. He was overtaken by a spiritual crisis. It was, it was Luther, Martin Luther. He was himself an Augustinian monk. He would write, I was a good monk. If ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. But his soul was in anguish. And loved ones, our souls will always be in anguish if we try to relate to God like Luther did before his conversion by his <clears throat> behavior by his works, by his good deeds, by his zeal for good deeds, you will always be in crisis mode if that's how you relate to God. So he probed every resource Catholicism of his day offered. He did every good work he could think of. He visited every holy place that he was able to go to. He purchased every holy relic he could. But nothing could quiet his soul and soothe his mind. His heart's cry was, where can I find a gracious God? And I want you to know, at that time, he was teaching his students the Bible verse by verse. And so history records for us, beginning in November of 1515 to September of 1516, he was teaching the book of Romans in his class, and as he prepared his lectures, he began to more and more understand over the course of that year the centrality of the doctrine of justification. This is what he said. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn, born again, and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning 
Get that? And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, it now began to fill me with an inexpressibly sweet love. The passage of Paul became to me the gateway to heaven, and I felt as though her gates were flung open for me. And Martin Luther did so much for the Protestant movement. We are, as Protestants, in many ways indebted to him. One more example, Karl Barth. He might be my favorite. He was a liberal scholar pre-World War I who had, along with other people, this idea of a utopic paradise of human progress and, and we could make society perfect if we all just worked together. So it was like, get us, get, inform- get us good information and get us good resources and put us around good people and we can do it because we're good people. And that was the spirit of the age. <clears throat> It's really similar, actually, to that kind of American commercialized version of Christianity. You know, get us good information, get us good resources, put us around good people. We're pretty good people. We can do it. And then World War I happened. Carnage, horror, death, mustard gas, you name it. And so as Karl Barth turned to the book of Romans, he began to see the kingdom of God was not like a, a religious brand of socialism. It had nothing to do with p- politics or political optimism. But it was a radically new beginning initiated by a gracious God. In fact, he kept coming up again and again in Romans of the goodness of God. So the more he read, it's like, God is good. And at the same time, he began to understand at a level he had never known before the depth of our depravity, human sin and human guilt. Listen to what he wrote on Romans 1.18. This is real high-minded stuff. If I can get it, I promise you, you can get it. Listen to what he says. Our relation to God, by nature, is ungodly. We assume that we are able to arrange our relation to God as we arrange our other relationships. It's perfect, isn't it? We dare to deck ourselves out as his customers, his advisors, and his commissioners. This is the ungodliness of humanity. It's perfect. This is what he's saying. We want to be God to God. And we want to tell him what he's like. And one of the ways we, we understand is by living as we like. But another way <clears throat> is defining his gospel as we like. And so when he came to grips with how just ineffective his own righteousness was, listen to what he said. The mighty voice of Paul was new to me. No doubt to many others also. And so what he understood was the absolute dependence on the grace of God in Jesus if there was going to be any hope for anyone at all. So historically, what I want you to see is how God used Romans to convict people, to convert people, to correct people, and just display his extravagant grace and his goodness that he lavished on us in Christ. And because of the book of Romans, read, preached, studied, people were changed. And my prayer is that God would be pleased to do that here to the praise of his glory, to the good of all people in our county, in our country, and his world, to whatever degree he desires to use our study in Romans. First word, foundationally. Second word, historically. Final word, personally. And you can see this if your Bible's open, and I sure hope it is. Paul follows his usual pattern, right? But he gives just a bit more personal information about himself than what was typical. And the reason is probably because Paul did not establish the church in Rome. In fact, at this time, he never visited the church in Rome. 
So he wants to give them personal information about him and to tell them how he understands himself before God. Now, if you look at verse 1, his first description is super telling, isn't it? He says, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. That, that's the better translation of the Greek word there, doulos, translated servant in the NIV. His first personal description is, look, I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. I don't think it's by accident. And the reason why is about 30 to 40% of people in Rome were slaves. They weren't citizens. So don't you think that many of the Christians in Rome who were probably slaves could identify with Paul right out of the gate? Hey, this is the first thing I want you to know, Christians in Rome. I want you to know that I'm a slave of a person named Christ. Second thing is Paul writes that he was called, maybe, or summoned to be an apostle. Now, that is a distinctly Christian title. It was the title that Jesus himself gave to the disciples. Now, in order to be an apostle, and this is important, you had to meet three qualifications. You can read them in 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Corinthians 15 around verse 8. Number one, you had to have a personal call and commission by Jesus Christ himself. Number two, you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection of the historical Jesus Christ. Number three, they were sent out commissioned personally, face-to-face, by Jesus to preach his message with his authority. Now, as you think about that, that means there's, there's no new apostles in that sense today. The apostolic ministry, as we understand it, was unique and unrepeatable. Its application timeless and applicable because the Bible, the canon is closed. The Bible is completed. God has spoken finally and God has spoken savingly in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. So he isn't keeping uh, needing information from his kids, nor, listen carefully, is he giving, giving some kind of like secret intel to only a few of his kids. Everything we need to know about life and godliness and about the message of the cross We can know from God's word, which is why preachers are not apostles. And we don't call ourselves into public ministry, which is why preaching in our day is not receiving a new revelation from God outside the canon of Scripture. Rather, it's expounding revealed truth already given from the Scripture. It's it's something like this. When I go to my study, I'm not listening for the voice of God in my head, not an audible voice. I'm studying the word of God with my mind, praying constantly for mercy and pity and and wisdom and words. However, at the time of the, the apostles' ministry, the scriptures were being completed. Therefore, the apostles were needed to declare truth, to preserve truth, to write down and defend truth. That's important. Declare the truth. They're an apostle. They have the authority. Preserve it. Write down it. And defend it. Now, those two titles of slave or servant and apostles are actually closely tied together. And this is very, very important. One title has to do with authority of the person, an apostle. We understand that. The other has to do with the authority of the person who Paul is a slave to, Jesus Christ. However, both titles, apostle and and servant or slave, both call for total submission to Jesus. Therefore, for Paul to say he was a slave meant he was saying, listen, I'm completely at my master's disposal. 
I'm not my own. I've been purchased by God. I can't go my own way. I can't do my own thing. I can't even say my own thing. And when he said he was an apostle, he meant exactly the same, even as he had authority over the churches. Because everything about Paul's work was a given work. This is so foundational. His message, the gospel, was a given message. His mandate, what Paul should do, was a directive from God, a given mandate. His authority was a derived authority. In other words, there was nothing about Paul's ministry which emanated, sourced, or transpired from, originally from Paul's mind. That's so important because by dent of principle, it should be the same for the church. Paul was given everything he had. Paul, I am Jesus whom you have persecuted. Remember in Acts, Paul, here's the gospel. I want you to preach it. I want you to defend it. I want you to explain it. I want you to guard it. I want you to establish the church with it. I want you to relate to me and to others with it. I want you to write it down in letters to churches. I want you to heal church problems with it. And I, com- I want you to command false teachers to get in line with it. And in that sense, knowing that none of us are apostles, but all of us here, if we are Christians, we are slaves to Jesus Christ. Listen to the voice of Jesus. Here's the gospel. I want you to preach it or at least talk to other people about it. I want you to advance it. I want you to defend it. I want you to guard it. I want you to explain it. I want you to relate to me and relate to others through it. I want you to establish the church with it. I want you to heal church problems with it. And I want you to watch out for false teachers who aren't in line with it. Okay, Paul, who are you? I'm a slave of Christ, and so are we Christians. Paul, who are you? I'm an apostle. We are not Christians. And the final description he gives on himself is verse 1b, set apart for the gospel. And this, again, is so telling. The word that Paul chose to use in that phrase, set apart, was a Greek word. It's a, it's a compound word, aphorismenos. And the reason why I tell you that, the root meaning is where we get our word Pharisee. And before Paul met Jesus Christ, what was Paul? He was a Pharisee, and he was a really, really good one. So scholars think that Paul is being deliberate here for this reason. As a Pharisee, please listen, Paul set himself apart for the law. That was his own self-designation. I set myself apart for obedience to the law. Therein, I am set apart for the law. And now he says, I'm a new person. I'm not a walking contradiction, partly partly fact and partly fiction. I am set apart, verse 1, for the gospel of God, which is beautiful and it's striking. Now stay with me. Paul, before he met Christ, was, if you would, the, the quintessential prototypical Pharisee. He was the poster boy for how to be a good Pharisee. He set himself apart for the law, and he was really, really good at it, and he was at least externally, right? So people were fooled about Paul's external behavior. When they saw Paul, they go, there goes a righteous guy. Now, what was the effect of Paul setting himself aside for the law or for obedience? Listen to your Bible. This is Acts. This is Paul. This is Paul under the law, relating to God through his works and through his good deeds. I determined in myself that I was going to put a stop to the cult around Jesus of Nazareth. I gave my voice against them 
Christians, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme Jesus. And being exceedingly mad or furious against them, I persecuted them even into foreign cities. Luke writes around chapter 8, verse 1, that Paul approved of the stoning of Stephen and he made havoc or he laid waste. In other words, it's a Greek word describing Paul like a wild boar rampaging through a garden. I was out of my mind, Paul said. I was angry. I was condemning. I was self-righteous. I was blind to my own depravity. And I hated Christians. They were bad. I was good. Now again, externally, Paul was humming along. But internally, he was a wretched mess. And psychologically, he was angry. He was hard. He was condemning. And loved ones, the reason why we went down that line, that's what the law, that's what morality on its own will do to a person. We're going to learn this from Romans. The law on its own destroys. It's a hammer. But it was a hammer meant to drive us to Jesus, not to try to defend ourselves, not to try to say we're not guilty, or use it as a tool to shame others or destroy others. You know, you're not doing X and I am. Dude, what's wrong with you? No, Paul misused the law to justify himself and he was able to go hyper-condemning on Christians even to their death. And, And at least figuratively, that can happen in any church and it can happen behind any pulpit when the person leads with the law, do good, be better, do good, be better. However, Here's the good news. When Jesus came to Paul, it was a complete reversal. And the Paul who was the quintessential prototypical picture of what it looked to be set apart from the law, now because of God's grace, is the quintessential prototypical picture of being set apart, verse 1, for the gospel of God. Okay, so what effect does that have on Paul? Well, Paul's like, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I'm an apostle. I'm set apart for the gospel. And also, now listen carefully, Paul is able to say about himself, 1 Timothy 1, uh, I'm the worst of all sinners right now. I'm the least, of, the least of all the saints right now. And when it comes to apostleship, I'm in the back of the line of the apostles. And loved ones, he can say these things because he's a gospel man. And the gospel people boast about Christ and put no confidence in their flesh, in their righteousness. Because if we're really Christian, we, we really know how sinful we are. And so Paul goes on, but for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example. And that word example means as the prototype, as the quintessential prototypical example for those who believe in Christ and receive eternal life, those set apart For the gospel. Do you understand this? What he's saying is as sinful as I declare myself to be. I have been set apart by a gracious God for the gospel of God. And righteous people foundationally and continually live by faith in Jesus Christ. They do not live by righteous deeds. I'm sure Paul would say I wouldn't have four friends in all of Jerusalem if you knew what was in my heart. Now listen, those of you who are worried about obedience, oh, we're going to learn about obedience. We'll tackle that. But having that mindset as Paul, 
Paul turned the world upside down with Jesus and for Jesus. And so if a person says flatly, listen carefully, if a person says flatly, I'm going to get really serious about some kind of moral attribute I lack, does it sound commendable? Absolutely. But that person is setting themselves apart for the law and not for the gospel, and there is a massive, massive difference. Actually, we sing that difference. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. Point number one, foundationally, grace. It's the heartbeat of this letter. Historically, God changed people through the book of Romans. Personally, God changed Paul from a self-described law keeper to a Christian, a slave of Jesus, an apostle set apart from the gospel. So let's end by saying this. The message of Romans is the fullest, grandest, and plainest statement of the gospel. The message of Romans is, that, is not that men and women are born free, but everywhere, everywhere they're in chains. So society has messed them up. The families that we were born into messed them up. Their context messed them up. Something messed them up. Something is holding them back because it can't be us. The book of Romans says it's us. We are born in sin and we are slaves to it. But Jesus Christ has come to set us free. The death of sin by the death of Christ. In Romans, we find the good news of freedom. Freedom not that we can finally do whatever we want. That is bondage. That is bondage. Freedom from the wrath of God upon all our ungodliness. Freedom, freedom from being alienated from God. Now we are reconciled and we have an unbreakable, joyous relationship which never goes sour. Human relationships can, we understand that. It's regrettable, but it can. This relationship never goes sour because it's in Christ. Freedom from what Malcolm Megaridge used to call the dark little dungeon of our own ego. Freedom from the fear of death. Freedom from one day uh, the groans of creation. This world is in decay. We are in decay. One day that's going to end. New heaven, new earth, new body forever. Here's something that's important to me right now. Complete freedom from any kind of ethnic separation. I mean, that's our world right now. So one day, the Coca-Cola song is going to be true. It's going to be even better. I'd like to see the world for once all standing hand in hand and hear them echo through the hills for peace throughout the land. Romans tells me that peace is coming through Jesus Christ alone. So there's going to be freedom from everything which separates us now, ethnic separation, intellectual separation, financial, facial, the way we look, the way we monitor and judge people by how they look, political, ageism, sexism, that is all going away. It's all going away. Freedom to know that every nanosecond of our existence, God is working all things for the good. And finally, maybe the greatest freedom, freedom to give ourselves to love Jesus, to serve Jesus, to worship Jesus, and to serve his people and to serve others. A slave, a servant of Jesus Christ. Let's end with Martin Luther. Listen to what he says about the book of Romans. The object of this epistle 
is to destroy all wisdom and works of the flesh, no matter how important these may appear in our eyes or the eyes of others. And no matter how sincere and earnest we might be in their use, in its place, Romans implants, deepens, and magnifies the sense of sin, no matter how little of it, in our opinion, there may exist, or how much of it may be there. Christ desires to have our hearts so free and divested of our own righteousness. Do you get that? Christ desires to have our hearts so free and divested of our own righteousness and wisdom that for our sins, this is beautiful, <laughs> for our sins, we fear no denial of God's grace. And for our virtues, we seek no glory and vain satisfaction. At the end of the day yesterday, I came across this. It's from a book by Tim Keller, uh, Prodigal God. And in this little thing I'm going to read you, he says how even Christians can use their goodness to avoid the real Jesus. And this is what he says. In her novel, Wise Blood, Flannery O'Connor says of her character, Hazel Motes, that there was a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. This is a profound insight. You can avoid Jesus as Savior by keeping all the moral laws. If you do that, then you have rights, like the prodigal son's big brother. If you do that, then you have rights. God owes you answered prayers. God owes you a good life and a ticket to heaven when you die. You don't need a savior. You just need yourself. I don't know about you. I need a savior. And my guess is that in some way, everyone in this room understands that and glories in Christ because of that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, you, you volunteered to become a person to allow the very creatures whom you made to sin against you in the deepest ways. You, you lived a life of perfect goodness for us. You loved others well, yet you were mocked and you were beaten and you were spat upon and you were despised. And in all of that, you prayed for their forgiveness, especially those who abused you most. So we thank you for your obedience, which covers over our daily, our daily sins. Without your death in our place and without your righteousness credited to us, we, we could never enjoy the beaming delight of having a heavenly father, knowing the presence of the Holy Spirit, and having our elder brother, you, Lord Jesus Christ, as our friend. Thank you for giving us your righteousness even though we are still very sinful. And Holy Spirit, we would simply ask that you would please help us as we move through this study in Romans. This is so big, and we desperately need your help. Our minds can wander into all kinds of things, so please show us the way and help us to walk in it. Help us to be people who are like you, the God of the Bible, 
people set apart for the gospel and not set apart for some kind of moral attributes. Help us to be disgusted with ourselves privately when we lean on our good works as a mechanism or means to any advantage in our life, either before you or before others. And may it be said again and again, and may we never get tired of hearing it, that we boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. And more and more, we we put no confidence in our flesh. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all who believe, both today and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.